I encourage you to turn in your Bibles again uh, to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 45 this morning. As you turn there, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your beautiful creation that we can gather here outside together as one body, worshiping you, coming here to lift your name up. And also, Lord, we come here hungry. We come here spiritually thirsty. We need to feed upon your living words. We need to feed upon you. And so we pray, God, that by your spirit, that you would come and meet with us, commune with us, fellowship with us, strengthen us, edify us, rebuke us, convict us, have your way with us. Feed us by your word. We need your words of eternal life. And so as we look at your word here this morning, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes, that Christ would be exalted here in our midst, that we would be edified, and that, Lord, you would save. Save those who do not know you. Save those who are seeking you. Deepen our faith and our love for Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been out of Mark um, for quite some time, and so I think it will be helpful just to give a very quick review, <clears throat> a quick review of what we've covered in the Gospel of Mark this far. From chapters 1 all the way to Mark of 8, verse 26, we could summarize that whole section in one sense as Mark establishing the authoritative reality of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark is establishing the authoritative ministry of the Son of God in the person of Jesus. His authority over demons, his authority over sickness, his authority over diseases, his authority in his teaching, his authority, of course, most importantly, in, in being able to forgive sins. That's Mark 1 all the way to Mark chapter 8, verse 26. It is focusing on the authority of the Son of God. And then from Mark 8, 27, the focus shifts to Jesus emphasizing his own suffering and death. He begins to focus on his disciples and begins to prepare them for what is coming. See, by Mark 10... Jesus is already making his way to Jerusalem, where, he will, where we know he will ultimately suffer and die. And so the focus goes from the, the emphasis on his authority as God's son to the focus being the suffering that he will endure as God's son. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And then we have this immediate context of Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, we've seen that he's He's taught on receiving the kingdom like a child. That is to come to God with a, a helpless dependence upon him for him to deliver you and save you from your sins. That's Mark 10, 13 to 16. And then we left off with Jesus having that encounter with the rich young ruler who was wanting to know what, what one must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, of course, calls him to give away all that he has to the poor. But the man was unwilling. 
You see, Jesus in that story was exposing that man's heart idolatry. He loved his money more than God and others. He wasn't willing to give it all up in order to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to serve the poor because he was enslaved to his false god of riches. And so Jesus ends off that encounter with that rich young man, telling his disciples that those who have left everything to follow him will receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come, plus persecutions. And then he ends off that dialogue with verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And that's an important statement in thinking about what we're looking at here this morning in verses 32 to 45. Because Jesus is going to, once again, teach his disciples the definition of true greatness according to Christ and his kingdom. And it's utterly contrary to how the world defines and views greatness. So the story picks up with Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, and the disciples are following behind him. And here in verse 32 to 34, Jesus, for the third time, tells his disciples and predicts his impending death in Jerusalem. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Most likely they were amazed and afraid at the determination that Jesus had to go towards Jerusalem. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Seeing, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the third time Jesus has told his disciples that this is going to happen. The first time was right after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, in chapters 8, 27 to 33. The second time is in chapters 9, 30 to 32. Each time, including this passage, there's a consistent pattern. Jesus predicts his death, the disciples don't get it, and begin talking about things that are completely contrary to the mission and suffering of Jesus. And then Jesus responds to them by teaching, that, by teaching what it actually means to follow him, what true discipleship is all about. In Mark 8, in response to Peter's rebuke to Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to follow him, they must be willing to take up their cross and follow him. That is, they must be willing to suffer alongside Jesus, be willing to even die for the sake of Jesus. In Mark 9, Jesus predicts his death, and his disciples begin discussing amongst themselves who is the greatest. And Jesus, of course, responds to their idiocy by teaching them that if anyone would be first, they must be willing to be last and the servant of all. And here in Mark 10, you have the exact same pattern. 
He's on his way to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples he's going to be condemned to death, mocked, spat on, flogged, and they will kill him. But three days later, he will rise. This is just what he shared with them. And two of his disciples have the good old idea to go up to him and have a conversation with him because they are self-focused and so ignorant that all they care about is their place of honor in the glory of Christ's kingdom, despite the fact that Jesus has just shared with them that he's going to suffer and die. And we see this in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, if you're a parent, and one of your kids comes to you saying, I want you to do whatever I ask. You know that what he's about to ask is outrageous. That's what's going on here with James and John. And yet, Jesus entertains their ridiculous question. Look at verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 37, we get their self-consumed sinfully ambitious requests and they said to him grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory in other words give us the highest place of honor in your kingdom now this request is probably stemming from the fact that jesus is on his way to jerusalem remember the disciples have no category in their minds for a suffering Messiah, despite Jesus telling them plainly. See, they probably think that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to re-establish the throne of David and to establish his kingdom. They're so blinded by their misconception that they have the audacity to make this request to Jesus just after he's spoken about his own suffering and death. Jesus says, I'm about to be condemned to death, mocked, spat on, flogged, and killed. Hey, hey, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your kingdom? You see, they're asking that they be first in his kingdom. Despite the fact that just before this, in verse 31, Jesus told them, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You see, they're not simply asking that they make it to glory. That's not good enough. It's not enough to simply be with Jesus in glory, but we want to be the greatest in your kingdom, apart from you, of course. So they're self-consumed, they're sinfully ambitious, and they're also ignorant. And we see this in Jesus' response to them in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. And they don't. They're completely oblivious. And you see this in what Jesus asked them and how they respond to his questions in verse 38 to 39. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? The cup and baptism are two metaphors here that Jesus is using 
in reference to his suffering and death. The image of the cup is used throughout the Old Testament to convey God's judgment against sinners. It's the the cup of God's righteous judgment. And though this is rare, Jesus is using the word baptism here parallel with the word cup, referring to the same reality. Baptism representing his death. And so Jesus, in his question to James and John, is conveying that as the Son of God, he will bear the cup of God's righteous judgment in the place of sinners. He will suffer and die. And so when Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking, are you able to drink my cup and experience my baptism? He's making a connection between his suffering and his glorification. You want to sit at my right hand, but are you prepared to suffer in order that you could sit at my right hand? You see, the pattern in Scripture is clear. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering is a prerequisite to glory. Throughout the Scriptures, we see this pattern. The cross precedes the crown. The cross is the prerequisite to the crown. We see this in Jesus' own life. Before he was exalted and glorified, he first suffered and died. And part of what Satan was trying to do when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness was to keep him from going to the cross because Satan knew that there is no crown if there is no cross. And Satan tries to do that in our lives. Escape suffering. Escape the cross. You'll be promised glory. And God says, no. The cross and suffering precedes glory. The cross and suffering is a prerequisite to glory. So when James and John request the place of honor at Jesus' right and left hand, Jesus is telling them that a a prerequisite to that is a willingness to be a participant in his sufferings. Are you able to drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism? You see, to share another's cup was an expression in the ancient world for sharing one's fate. Jesus is saying, are you able to share in my sufferings? Because that's a prerequisite to be able to share in my glory. Now, how do James and John respond? Well, I would say they respond with confident ignorance. Confident ignorance. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. We are able to drink your cup and be baptized with your baptism. They're completely speaking out of ignorance despite demonstrating confidence. They think that what lies over the horizon is glory, when in reality, what lies over the horizon is a cross. Now, in response to them, Jesus does, in fact, affirm that they will indeed drink his cup and will be baptized with his baptism. They don't fully understand, but Jesus is predicting that as his disciples, they're going to share in his sufferings. And not only that, he tells them that to sit at his left hand or right hand is not for him to grant. It's for those whom it's been prepared. So Jesus has this dialogue with these two disciples. And how do the other disciples respond to all of this? 
Well, we see their response in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, this wasn't some holy indignation on the part of the other disciples. This wasn't some righteous anger towards James and John. They're indignant because they themselves want the place of honor. They themselves think that they should be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. They have the same selfish ambition as James and John, except they weren't bold enough to ask Jesus for it. Now, I know it's easy to be hard on the 12 disciples. Their weaknesses and faults are on full display all the time in the Gospels. But let's remember that often the disciples in the Gospels are meant to convey what all of Jesus' disciples are alike, you and me. That's what they're meant to convey in the Gospels. They're meant to convey just how fragile you and I as followers of Jesus are, how broken and sinful we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, that desire that James and John have, that, that desire to be in the place of honor, to be seen as great, to be recognized by others, resides in all of our hearts. How much do we want to be spoken well of? How much do we want to be viewed through a certain lens by others? And how disturbed or offended we are when others speak ill of us or view us negatively. How could they? There's lots of reasons to speak negatively about me and about you. We are all sinners before a holy God. We want the place of status. We want recognition. We pursue this education or this career or this house or this car so that we can reveal our status in society. There was a recent survey done that revealed that 40% 40 of Canadians are living beyond their means, which is leading to insurmountable levels of debt. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons for this. But I have no doubt that one of the reasons for this is due to that sinful desire to maintain a certain status in society despite not actually having that status. How much of our superficial happiness stems from how many likes we get on Instagram or Twitter or how many followers we have on social media? We are not so different than the disciples of Jesus who desired worldly greatness and worldly honor. And so it's at this point that Jesus decides to take this opportunity to once again teach his disciples the true nature of discipleship and the true nature of greatness. In verse 42, Jesus calls the twelve to him and says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
in order for Jesus to get his point across, he contrasts the conduct of pagan Gentile rulers to the conduct that he expects of his disciples. These Gentile rulers view greatness through the lens of of who has authority and, and who is receiving service rather than who is serving. What defined greatness in the Gentile pagan world was not being a servant, but rather you had servants. These rulers lived for the place of honor. They demanded adoration from the people. Their greatness was defined by their power and authority over people. And this is still the thinking of our fallen world today. Greatness is defined by power, status, fame, accomplishments. This is the way the world operates, and this is the way the disciples are thinking and operating. And sadly, this is the way that sometimes we operate and think. And Jesus tells them, this must not be so among you. In other words, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is a whole other way of thinking about greatness. Greatness is not defined by power and strength and fame and status. It's not defined by how many Twitter or Instagram followers you have. Greatness is defined by loving service towards others. As he says, whoever would be great, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The greatest in the kingdom of Jesus is the one who devotes her life in the loving service of others. If you want to have a greater impact for Jesus and his kingdom, it doesn't fundamentally happen by doing great things for him according to worldly standards. It happens when you choose every day to do the small acts of loving service toward others. It happens when you intentionally look for small ways to serve your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It happens when you look for small ways to serve those God has providentially brought in your path throughout the week. It happens by living less for yourself and living more for others on a daily basis. And so Jesus tells his disciples that true greatness is seen in loving servanthood. And then in verse 45, in contrast to the Gentile rulers, he holds himself up as an example to be followed. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of Man, who has all authority, all glory, and all power, who is worthy of your worship, worthy of your allegiance, worthy of your devotion, did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. And he did this by laying his down his life sorry he did this by laying his life down as a ransom for many. Now there's some very important truths in this verse that we need to see and understand. 
This verse is central to Mark's gospel. Because Jesus here in verse 45 tells us precisely what his mission is. He came to serve. And that service was manifested in him giving his life as a ransom for many. That's what the gospel of Mark is about. And the first thing we need to see is we need to be ransomed. We need to be ransomed. What does Jesus mean when he says that he gave his life as a ransom for many? Well, that word ransom carries with it the idea of deliverance through purchase. Deliverance through purchase. In other words, someone is taken captive and in order for them to be delivered, freed, a ransom price must be paid. And when that ransom price is paid, the one who was captured and enslaved is set free, delivered. That's the metaphor being used to describe what Jesus did in his act of service for the world, or as Jesus says, for the many. That is, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You see, the Bible describes the human race as being captured by sin and Satan. That we are slaves to sin. We are shackled and imprisoned to sin. And the only way for humans to be freed from their sin is by having their ransom price paid. This is why Jesus came, to pay that ransom price. But he did not pay the ransom price with money. He paid it with his own blood. He paid it by his death because the wages of sin is death. The ransom price was death. You see, the greatest act of service in human history was Jesus laying down his life as a ransom, crucified to a cross, dying for the sins of the world. So that sinners like you and me could be set free, delivered from our slavery sin, for, for, from our slavery to sin, so that our shackles could be broken and we could walk as free men and women under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was the great act of service by Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that those who repent, that is, turn away from their sins and believe in Jesus, that is, they turn towards Jesus, they have been ransomed by Jesus, delivered by him. Brothers and sisters, friend, if you do not know Jesus, you need to hear this. You need to be ransomed by Jesus. Secondly, this is important for those of you who are followers of Jesus, and also for those of you who do not follow Jesus. Hear this. Jesus does not need your service. You need his service. Jesus does not need your service. You need his service. He did not come to be served. Jesus did not come to be served. Why? Because he doesn't need to be served. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. See, the first step in coming to Jesus is realizing you have nothing to offer him, but that he has everything to offer you. You need the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. You need mercy and grace. Jesus has compassion on sinners. You need eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. You need your thirst quenched. Jesus has living water to satisfy your thirst. You need victory over death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he proved it when he rose from the dead. Jesus doesn't need your service. You need his service. You see, if you think the Christian life is fundamentally about serving Jesus, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is fundamentally about being served by Jesus. That is the essence of Christianity. Jesus isn't looking for servants. He's looking to be your servant. Jesus will be the servant of his people for all eternity. Now you might object. You might say, doesn't that dishonor Jesus if he's our servant? Only if you're thinking in worldly categories. Only if you're thinking in worldly categories, because Jesus has said, the servant of all is the greatest. Which means, by Jesus being our servant on a daily basis for all of eternity, demonstrates that he is the greatest. You see, it would dishonor Jesus if what we understood by servant is one who receives our orders and obeys as if we were his master. That would completely dishonor him. But if we come to him acknowledging that we're weak and in need of his strength and his service, that honors him. That brings him joy. You want to know how to honor Jesus? Allow him to serve you. Listen, if you will not receive his sacrificial service, you will never be his servant. You remember when Jesus um, decides to get down to wash the disciples' feet in John 13, and he has that interaction with the apostle Peter? In John 13, 5-9, we read this. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus, you shall never serve me. Lord, this is beneath you. You're too great for this. I should be washing your feet. How does Jesus respond to him? Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, if you do not let me serve you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Listen, Jesus wants to be your servant because he need, because you need his service. See, if someone came up to you <clears throat> and asked you, 
Who is Jesus? There's a lot of answers you could give to that question. He's God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of the world. He's the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. He's the great shepherd. He's the judge of the universe. All of these would be true and correct. And you know what else would be true if someone asked you who Jesus is? He's the servant of his people. He delights in that title. So let me just quickly try to lift off, list off as many possible ways from the scriptures that Jesus serves his people. And this is not exhaustive. He sustains our very lives, whether you're his child or not. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means that your life at every moment of every millisecond is sustained by the service of Jesus. He sanctifies us in the truth. He makes us more holy. He heals our diseases. He forgives our sins. He provides us with food and meets our every need and our every daily need. He bears our burdens. He shows us mercy and grace every moment of every day because we need his mercy and grace every moment of every day. He gives us wisdom and understanding for how to live in this fallen, complex world. He disciplines us when we need it. He allows the sun to rise on us whether we are righteous or unrighteous. He gives us all good things to enjoy. He prepares a banquet for us in the presence of our enemies. He's an ever-present help in times of troubles. He protects us from the evil one. He defeats our enemies. He dies for our sins. That is all and many more the ways in which Jesus serves his people. For as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've heard Christians, pastors, churches Um, And I've probably said it too. Don't come to church to be served, but come to serve. And in one sense, it's true. Each of us should come eager to be the servant of all, not simply to be served, just as Jesus has taught his disciples here in this passage. But I also want all of us to come to church with a desire to be served. Each and every Sunday, I want us to come eager, hungry, thirsty to be served by Jesus. Jesus wants you to come eager, hungry, and thirsty to be served by him. If you're not coming to be served by Jesus, you're wasting your time. Come that you may be served by the gracious hands of our Savior. Come that you might be served by his precious words of life that feed your hungry souls. Come and drink from his fountain of living water. Come and let Jesus serve you. Because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then, by his service, he empowers us to serve one another. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be great? Then live by the example of our Savior who spent his earthly life and who will spend all of eternity serving his people. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the example of your son, who humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, who became a slave so that we might become free. I pray, Lord, that each of us would come hungry to feed from the gracious, servant-hearted hands of our Savior Jesus, and that each of us would also be eager to be great by being the servant of all. Do this for the glory of your Son's name. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.